That was pretty cool. Thanks. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we're continuing our resurrection series here at Connect, uh, and we're examining the end of the Apostles' Creed, where we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Last week, uh, if you missed it, we had a bit of a crash course on what God has revealed about all these things, how he's promised to raise us up on the last day, the day that Jesus returns to us, and and how not only our bodies, uh, but all of creation will be restored and rescued from its bondage to decay. Uh, So if you weren't here last week and would like to to see that, it is up online, um, or if you'd just like to hear it again, uh, we kind of threw a lot at you last week. Uh, Today, we're going to be diving headfirst right into this idea of renewal, Um, with our reading from Revelation 21, where John, in his grand vision of what's to come, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So let's start with heaven. Uh, Last time I left you with a quote uh, that I hope you've given some thought to this past week, and that was, Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Now my guess is that this quote was fairly intriguing to most of you, if not maybe a little troubling, because um, it's not exactly the way that that we have typically tended to think about the relationship between heaven and earth. I think we typically think earth is here, heaven is there. Uh, When I die, my, my soul leaves my body, leaves earth behind, goes up to heaven, and stays there with God eternally, and and earth uh, just, you know, isn't around anymore or something like that. Is that right? Well, no. Actually, not, not really. Um, so we're going to be talking about that today. And, and in order to do that, I want to ask a basic question. What is heaven? Is it something like that? Um, last summer, I read one of the most important books that I've read in a very long time, aside from the Bible. Now, that's the most important book. Uh, but I read a book called Surprised by Hope. And it's written by N.T. Wright. Uh, N.T. Wright is is one of the, the most famous, one of the top uh, New Testament scholars in the world today. And uh, by the way, this book is available in our church library. Um, I, think it, I think he has it under the name of Tom right there, but, but go on in and check that out uh, as soon as you get the chance. Uh, no pun intended. Check it out, check it out. Yeah. In this book, N.T. Wright says this, Heaven in the Bible is not a future destiny, but the other hidden dimension of our ordinary life, God's dimension, if you like. So in other words, heaven is God's space. Heaven is where the pure, unadulterated, and undiluted presence of God dwells. And I think the main reason that we've gotten this impression over the years that the Christian's goal is to die and and have our souls go to heaven forever is because when we die... Our souls do go to rest in the presence of Christ, in the presence of God, which is heaven by its very definition. But death for God's saints is often referred to in the Bible as as a kind of sleep as well. Now, the Bible just doesn't give us a ton of information about what happens between our death and our resurrection. But what we do know is that it will be restful that it will be wonderful because it will be with God. It will be better than anything we've ever experienced before. But the Bible also tells us that that state, whatever it's like, will not be forever. 
Something even better is coming. As we mentioned last week, the Bible gives us really a two-step process. When we die, our, our souls go to rest with Jesus. We can call this heaven if we like to. The Bible does here and there. It is in the presence of God. But then will come resurrection on the last day, when we will be raised to life forever in our bodies, in God's new creation, his new heaven, and his new earth. Which leads us to our next question. Why on earth do we need earth? After last week's service, uh, Doc Ressler shared with me a quote that he had heard. Uh, A pastor had once asked, what's wrong with heaven? And the answer was, no bodies. You see, the life everlasting described in the Bible is not some ethereal, float-in-the-clouds sort of experience or, or eternal existence like that. As crazy as it may sound, heaven itself is incomplete without earth, without God's very good physical creation. Think of it this way. The Garden of Eden, was it heaven? What do you think? Was the Garden of Eden heaven? Operating with our our definition that's taken from the scriptures, yes, the Garden of Eden was heaven. It was the place where God dwelled fully and completely. He walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? In the cool of the day. Well, was the Garden of Eden earth? Yes. Absolutely. It was kind of the culmination of God's creative work, wasn't it? It was, it was a place where, uh, where Adam and Eve dwelled in their bodies right alongside the Lord. In the Garden of Eden, heaven and earth were joined together as one. So shall it be again. As John records in his vision, he hears God say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Just as before. This is why N.T. Wright says in his book that the second and third petitions of the Lord's Prayer should be so important to us. He writes, Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven remains one of the most powerful and revolutionary sentences we can ever say. As I see it, the prayer was powerfully answered at the first Easter and will finally be answered fully when heaven and earth are joined in the new Jerusalem. This is what God means then when he says, Behold, I am making all things new. Now It's important to note here that God is not saying that he is throwing out every single thing that had to do with his first creation and starting over completely from scratch. If that were the case, you and I would cease to exist. No, the word new here in Revelation 21 especially has the sense of renewal. God making all things brand new again. As we ponder this today, I'd like to invite you to to consider three metaphors or or three analogies that I think help flesh this out quite a bit. Uh, The first is renovation. Now, when you renovate something, uh, you're making something new out of the old, making something better out of the same materials. To renovate means to, to reinvigorate, to refresh to revive. This is how the Bible talks about what God will do on that great last day. He, he's not starting all over again from brand new materials completely and, and casting out the old entirely. He's restoring his creation to newness. Uh-oh. 
We wanted you to really get a clear picture of uh, the boards and those table saw and, yeah, all sorts of fun stuff. <laughs> so, renovation. Um, let's see, should we just continue? All right. If we need to, we can go ahead and flip on maybe some lights, some of the gym fluorescent lights if we, if we get to that point. Yeah, so renovation means to, to make something new again out of what's already there, right? So when you renovate something, there we go. We renovated the, the lighting scheme, and we are back. Renovation leads to continuity and transformation, right? So when you renovate something, there's still a lot of continuity there. There's still a lot that you recognize from, from what it's always been. Just like you know, when you renovate your old house, uh, you still recognize your old house, and yet, there's great transformation as well, isn't there? There's, there's a newness and, and a, an originality that cannot be fully believed or conceived of until it's seen. So this is what God is doing with his, his heaven and his earth. He's, he's renewing them. He's renovating them. Um, he is going to, to keep the world the same world, but it will be gloriously remade. The same and yet different and far, far better than before. In God's new creation, the music of the birds will be even sweeter in the springtime, which I am starting to believe over the past few days is a real season that does exist, springtime. Uh, the majesty of mountain vistas like this will, will be even more majestic. The beauty of the skies will, will be far more beautiful than we ever could have imagined, and yet so much the same. At the same time, in this cosmic renovation that God is undertaking, he will literally rock your world, this world, his world. In the same way, your resurrected, newly renovated body will remain the same body as before, but it will be gloriously different, freed from from sin and, and sickness and death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, as we read together at the start of our service, Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With, with what kind of body do they come? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul compares our death and resurrection to the planting of a seed. Now here he's picking up on, on something that Jesus said during his earthly ministry. Paul says that what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. It is sown a natural body. It is raised spiritual body. Now, don't let this confuse you. Now, when Paul says spiritual body, he does not mean a spirit without a body. Spiritual body is, is not really an oxymoron here for Paul. There's, there's no body of any kind without real flesh and blood. Paul means to say here that we will have a body empowered and animated by the Holy Spirit of God just like Jesus' body was and is. In fact, Jesus' resurrection body is the archetype for ours. We will be like him. We said this last week. Uh, let's go a little deeper today. What is Jesus' resurrection body like? Well, again, there's continuity and transformation, right? In some ways, it's you know, very much the same. It is the same body as before. It still bears the marks of the nails and the spear. It, it walks, it talks, it eats, it has feet unlike a ghost. 
Jesus' body is normal enough that he can be confused for a gardener or a fellow traveler along the road. There's a lot of continuity with with Jesus' body before his resurrection. But there's also transformation. He comes and goes through locked doors. Uh, He's not always recognized. And then he ascends into heaven, into God's space, until his promised return. And we are told that our bodies will be like his. They will still be our bodies, but they will be transformed, made impervious to pain and, and weakness and decay, just as the body of Jesus never saw decay, as the psalm prophesied. In a way, there is a new and better reality that God is unfolding that will make everything we know now seem underwhelming by comparison. As N.T. Wright puts it, kind of following in the line of of C.S. Lewis, our body will be as much more real, more firmed up, more bodily than our present body, as our present body is more substantial, more touchable than a disembodied spirit. In other words, God has promised to take us, body and all, and make us even more ourselves. And that's a very good thing. Now, knowing this uh, leads to a question that a few people sent to me this past week. Uh, By the way, please continue sending any questions you have about any of these topics into me over these next few weeks. Uh, I'll do my best to answer them as best I can. Uh, But one of the questions that came up a few times this past week was about cremation. So if God has promised to raise up our bodies on the last day, should we avoid being cremated? Is God still able to raise us up if our bodies have been reduced to ashes? Well, yes. God can do whatever he wants, including reconstituting our bodies from the ashes. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? The bodies of the saints of old have long turned to dust, but that will not stop God from putting them back together. You know, this is kind of the same thing with those who who die in a fire or an explosion or something like that. Now, historically, the the church has usually chosen not to cremate because because we want to give a witness to the world that God will raise the dead, that our bodies are not useless and completely obsolete after we die. But God never prohibits cremation, and he's promised to raise us up no matter what state he finds us in. So that leads us uh, kind of into our second analogy for today, which is restoration. I was reading a little bit this past week about the restoration of the Sistine Chapel uh, in Vatican City that took place between uh, 1980 and 1998-99, somewhere around there. Uh, One of the greatest collections of art uh, in the entire world, it it is just mesmerizing. I was able to go there a few years back on a choir tour, and you kind of stand there and you're like, oh, that's one of the most famous paintings in the world. Cool, I didn't know that was in here. Then you kind of turn this way, you're like, oh, that's one of the most famous paintings in the entire world. Uh, It's just breathtaking. Well, over the years... um, these paintings came to, to be in great need of, of some help. Uh, wax and soot from the candles that had been burned in the chapel for over 500 years, along with exhaust from cars in Rome over the past 100 years or so, uh, had kind of slowly caked itself onto the ceiling and, and caused Michelangelo's famous frescoes to become gray and dull. And so an enormous restoration was undertaken. Professional art restorers used distilled water and and special solvents to 
to wipe away the grime and, and to, to fill in cracks with resin and plaster and to use watercolor to, to repaint where the paint, the original paint had kind of worn away. The result of this, I have a before and after picture here of the prophet Daniel. The result was astonishing. Colors that hadn't been seen for centuries were revealed. One church official said it was like opening a window in a dark room and seeing it flooded with light. Another said that it made it possible to contemplate the paintings as if you were there when they were first unveiled. The church father Athanasius once wrote, You know what happens when a a portrait that has been painted on a panel becomes obliterated through external stains. The artist does not throw away the panel, but the subject of the portrait has to come and sit for it again, and the likeness is redrawn on the same material. Even so was it with the all-holy Son of God. He, the image of the Father, came and dwelt in our midst in order that he might renew mankind made after himself. So this is what Paul is getting at when he says in 1 Corinthians, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that's Jesus. Because in Jesus, God came to restore his breathtaking work of art, all of creation and especially you and me. In Jesus, he has restored to us his image after our sin had done everything in its power to obliterate it. In Jesus, he has made it possible to see us as if we were there before sin and corruption and death ever grabbed a hold of us. In Jesus, we will be even better than before. Because the original artist is the one doing the restoration. Imagine if Michelangelo himself were somehow able to come back and repaint the Sistine Chapel. He'd not only restore it to its former glory, but would probably add a few extra flourishes as well. So too with God. He's making us anew, giving us fresh life. Another way of saying this is that God is giving us a complete renaissance. Anybody know what renaissance means? Rebirth. I heard that, or I at least saw someone mouth it. Renaissance means rebirth. Renaissance means a new birth, life again. Uh, the time of Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and those guys, all the Ninja Turtles, uh, was known as the Renaissance because it saw kind of the resurgence, the rebirth of classical art forms that had been lost. Well, through Christ, God also gives us a blessed Renaissance, a blessed rebirth. And it has already begun, both in Christ and in us. It began when Jesus was laid in a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And when he came back out of that new tomb to inaugurate a new world. Athanasius continues elsewhere, The supreme object of his coming was to bring about the resurrection of the body. This was to be the monument to his victory over death, the assurance to all that he had himself conquered corruption and that their own bodies also would eventually be incorrupt. And so the resurrection of Jesus is not so much some odd event within the world as it is now. It, It is a foundational, prototypical event within the world as it has now begun to be. 
As N.T. Wright has said, the new heaven and the new earth is the world that is being born with Jesus. What a cool way to say it. He continues by saying, the claim advanced in Christianity is of that magnitude. Jesus of Nazareth ushers in not simply a new religious possibility, not simply a, a new ethic or even a new way of salvation, but a new creation. You are a part of that new creation. God is already at work in you. Many of us are familiar with uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Pastor Kaiser referenced that at the beginning of our service. That says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Well, exactly one chapter before that, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being what? Renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We looked at what God has already revealed to us about this glory uh, last week, and we saw that, that it will one day be fully revealed in us as well. But the process has already begun, the preparations are already underway. You have already received Renaissance, new birth. Through your baptism, Jesus tells Nicodemus when he comes to him at night that, that you must be born again, born of water and the Spirit. Paul says that when you were baptized, you died with Christ so that you will rise with him. Paul connects baptism directly to God's promise of resurrection. And every day, day by day, God is renewing you, preparing you for that eternal weight of glory beyond compare. As Jesus said, Kind of cryptically in, in, his, uh, in our gospel lesson today, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. What he meant by that is, is that the coming of Christ demands an entirely new way of viewing the world, an entirely new way of viewing ourselves, of viewing one another. In fact, it demands a new creation, and brings it about. Jesus' coming makes all things new. So, we, as God's new creations, live it out. We act like we know that God is renewing the world. We show in our lives that Christ's death and resurrection have brought about a brand new world that is already on its way. Heaven is already breaking through. When it fully arrives, God will renew us and this world. We will live forever, new creations given new bodies, living in a new heaven and a new earth, citizens of the new Jerusalem for all eternity. On that day, as Isaiah says, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. At the end of Isaiah, Isaiah promises God promises through Isaiah a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, we will be eternally renewed. So we're going to pick up on this next week as we wrap up our resurrection series. Our theme will be reunited. We'll be talking about uh, how on the last day, God will, will reunite body and soul, loved ones, and uh, most importantly, himself with us. Until then, may the peace of Christ rule your minds and your hearts as you await the coming of his new heaven and new earth. In Jesus' name, amen.